Ladies and gentlemen, as part of the Jeremiah Show, welcome to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Now here's the host of the show, a man who was twice told he was going to be a regular on a TV series, and the next day, both shows were canceled. It's TV's Tim Stack. Yay! Yay! Me again! You're so sick of me, but I keep coming back. Um, hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. I'll quickly tell the story, uh, and my guest, Robin, I think will get a kick out of it because it's so weird and TV-like. So, th- but because this happened to me twice, the same experience happened twice where I was, I came onto a show as a guest star, and it went really well, and after we were done filming... They said, not even ever, during the filming, they said to me, this is, gonna, this is going so great. We really love you. We want to make you a series regular. So it happened to me on a show, uh, my guest Robin Schiff might remember, there was a show called After Mash, which, yeah, came, yeah, yeah. which came on After Mash. <laughs> I have some friends who are writers on that well, show. Well, they really liked me for about two hours <laughs> because what happened was I did an ep- two episodes of Aftermath, they, the character of Ernie, of course you all remember. <laughs> so I do Ernie, and then I come into work, and they say, Tim, the network loves you. They want to make you a series regular. I said, oh, my gosh, a ser- this is Aftermath. It's not quite MASH, but it's Aftermath. I said, fantastic. The next day, I come to work again. Ah, we're sorry. The show's been canceled. (laughs) So then I go on this other show called The Second Half. I had to write this one. I had to remember this one. I had to look it up. With John Mendoza. Do you remember this show at all, Robin? The Second Half. Comedian John Mendoza. Really funny guy. Really nice guy. Had a series. So they brought uh, me on as a guest star. With uh, I'll think of my wife's name, and and Wednesday the network run through is done. This is on a Monday through Friday schedule. Wednesday the network run through is done, and again after the run through, like we're going to make you two regulars on the show. This is fantastic! <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. We're going to be series regulars on the show. We come into work Thursday. Ah, uh, yeah, no, we've been canceled. <laughs> If I ever have a show, I'm not telling you you'll be a regular. <laughs> it's a guarantee for success. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm learning. <laughs> From this uh, podcast, radio show. That was so, my takeaway. So uh, let's uh, do a little, uh, we got a clip to introduce uh, my guest. Remember the prom? You got so thin by then. I was so lucky getting mono. That was like the best diet ever. Ugh. Meet Romy and Michelle. Remember that time I barfed from really bad Mexican food? So gross. I hate throwing up in public. Oh, me too! Oh. They walk the walk. God, this underwear is totally riding up my butt. <laughs> they talk the talk. Romy, did you lose weight? Uh. All I've had to eat for the past six days are gummy bears, jelly beans, and candy corn. God, I wish I had your discipline. But at their high school reunion... Are you going? I'd rather put this out in my right eye. Um, okay. <laughs> they'll be in a class by themselves. We can go to the reunion and just pretend to be successful. Oh, my God. Okay. Her IMDb credit, she has 24, which as a writer-producer is huge, I promise you. 
That's huge. <laughs> as a, it really is as a writer-producer. Obviously, she's the writer of Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, writer of the film Lover Boy, which is a very underrated film, and I remember when you got the order for that. That was very exciting. Executive producer of TV series Almost Perfect, The Bad Girl's Guide, currently on Emily in Paris, a fellow groundling from the old days. We're going to talk about that. Please welcome Robin Schiff. Yay! Yay! Yay me! Yay you! Uh, <laughs> thank you, uh, thank you, Robin. Again, uh, we were. I, my brother and I went to a strike day one day. Saw Robin, and she said she would do this. So I'm very appreciative. Uh, how are you? You were striking this morning. I was striking this morning. It was warm, but I've met people that I really like yes. on the picket lines and. Writers are just the best people. And, um, you know, it, it, there is a social aspect to it. People are very unified and that's a good feeling, but I don't see how we're going to get out of this. So that'll be interesting. Well, let's talk about, I, I want to talk about that in the third segment. We do 138 segments on, no. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so you're going to be here for a couple of days. Um, now we'll do that. I want to talk about that in the third segment um, because it's current and you have experience from the previous strike as being a member of the negotiating committee. So there's a right. little bit of experience, uh, certainly more than, than yeah. mine. So, but but I want to go back because we met at the Groundlings, and I was I kept thinking when I met you, you I think I remember you having sort of a career before the Groundlings. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Talk, was, talk about I that. Was making a living as a writer. I got into the Writers Guild in '81. Wow. So. I know. Wow is right. I can't even believe it. But so I was making a living for eight years writing stuff that didn't get made. So, you know, my parents had no idea what I did and didn't know how I was affording to live. Uh, <laughs> and it, I, when I look back on it, I can't believe that I kept going, but I was making a living. So when I was in the Groundlings, I was probably making... TV movie was maybe fifty thousand or sixty thousand. I was like the rich one at the Oh, ground. you were beyond rich. You ha I think you owned a car outright. <laughs> I owned a car outright. Right. I, I really do remember that because most groundlings like they stumble in off the street. They're partially homeless. It's you know they were selling one of them with Judy was selling chip witches. Yes, that's such a great yeah. Hollywood yeah. story yeah. of selling chip witches at the La Brea Tar Pits. But that's the, the normal yeah. groundling thing where people are you know they have jobs i was a waiter when i first got on the groundlings you know yeah. but but you came in with a career and i remember thinking like oh my god what is she doing here like and uh but then you took that and made it even more successful so so talk about we can talk about the i want to talk about the groundlings a little bit more in the next segment but talk about about romeo and michelle because it really is a classic movie. That is a classic comedy. It's almost like, I, it's not almost like, my wife and daughter will get into bed and smoke weed together and watch that movie. Can I say smoke weed on this show? We're in California. It's legal. Yeah. 
Well, you can tell them an interesting um, fact that not that many people know is I wrote a lot of that movie high. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what a coinkadink. What a coinkadink. So it is a good movie to watch high. <laughs> but, but it really is. And I feel like, um, you know, there's so many sort of like male mu- movies like that, old school and, and kingpin and sort of male driven. And I, I just love that it's female driven, but just as funny, just as equally funny and outrageous. Uh, so talk about that, how that happened, because it's a Groundlings movie. There were three mo- that I remember, three movies that came out of the Groundlings, Romy and Michelle, Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Casual Sex. And you were lucky enough to do one of them. So anyway, I'm, I'm talking way too long. Tell us about that. How would happen? Well, it it really did start at the Groundlings. Uh, uh, Judy Toll and other Groundling and I did a scene that was two women talking about getting respect in the workplace as they were changing clothes to go to a pickup bar, and <laughs> so it was just this sort of dilemma of wanting to be tr- taken seriously. Oh, and the scene involved the same guy who I wanted to take me seriously, I had a crush on. So I wanted to sort of write about all the, how confusing it was at that time, relationships between men and women. And then I decided to, it took place in a woman's bathroom. I turned that into a play. Which Uh, I just interrupt with a lot of groundling sketches turned into plays, some of which were lucky enough to become movies like yours. Right, right, exactly. And I had five groundlings or people either in the school or in the company in the play. I had Bridget, Sienna, Kate, um, Benton, Lisa Cujo, Christy Mellor. Wasn't Rita Wilson in the play? She was only in a reading of it. Oh, okay, okay. I forget who the fifth groundling was. Was uh, Dee Dee Howard in it? No. No, no. Okay. But uh, Lisa Kudrow's first audition on the planet Earth was for me. She was just <laughs> amazed. So I wrote this play that took place in a woman's bathroom at a pickup bar, but I decided I wanted it to be one long scene. In other words, I didn't want blackouts. So the main characters would go off into the bar. Stuff would happen off stage. And then um, I needed filler for on stage. And I there used to be a bar called Nikki Blair's yes. you drive by Nikki Blair's on, on the sunset strip and there would be friends waiting to get in and they would be wearing different versions of the same outfit. <laughs> so the first iteration of Romy and Michelle, and you know what, can I, can, can I share? I should have given you pictures because I have early pictures of Lisa Kudrow and Christy Mellor as Romy and Michelle in ladies room. I didn't even think of giving those to you, but Um, so I came up with these characters that were just these two completely just disgusting best friends who went to the bar looking for guys and their whole dialogue was that guy you were talking to was cute. He was cute, really cute. So what's he do? He works at a bank. Ooh, bank tailor, bad job. It was very, (laughs) very, very funny in the play. It was all about what's he do? Good job, bad job. We filmed all that and took it all out of the movie because it made them very unlikable. Once they became the main characters, as secondary characters. Can I, they can could, I interrupt for one second? Because I was always curious how they became the lead characters for the movie 
when in the play, they're sort of the comedy relief almost. This was unique in my very long career in that the characters took on a life of their own, starting with me coming up with them. I they were girls who would go to clubs and I never went to clubs. So I was like, I have to do research. I go to remember Carlos and Charlie's. Oh, also sure, yes. Also on Sunset. Yes. Yeah. So I go to Carlos and Charlie's. I go into the ladies room and I hear these two girls. Oh, my God, I hate my hair. Your hair, my hair. I'd trade my hair for your hair in two seconds. Take my hair. <laughs> and that was the whole conversation. And on the way home, I literally hear talking in my head, which is um, that thing that I just pitched about that yeah, guy. You sure. And um, and then one of the first things I came up with was, I hate throwing up in public, me too. But anyway, to answer your question, <laughs> the very first night at our very first preview, Romy and Michelle enter and get entrance applause. Wow. And to this day, I Whatever it was about those characters, people have responded from the first production, which was at the Tiffany Theater, also on the Sunset Strip. Yes. Um, we got an NBC pilot that Lisa Kudrow and Christy Mellor starred in because Christy played Romy in the play. Right. Another person I found at the Groundlings through Tracy Newman. And um, Christy Mellor was the one, the other Groundling. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Exactly. Uh, she, exactly. She used to do a really funny bit about having mom. Remember, like, oh, moms. You know how they hand you. They she was a, like a psychotic stand-up comic. You know how they yeah. hold your hand over a flame. Oh, moms, they're too much. <laughs> she was really yeah, funny. She, she was great. So I did a pilot. Then years later, my agent submitted "Ladies' Room," which was what the play was called, as a writing sample to two female disney executives and they read it again minor characters and they were like we think this could be a female wayne's world oh that's great pulled me in and my first reaction was these characters i don't see how they can be the center of a movie they weren't dimensional enough and um one of the producers of the movie was a guy named barry camp who's mm -hmm. started out as my mentor and now is a dear friend lives in santa and barbara he lives in, yeah, yeah, in Santa Barbara. Um, he sort of knew that they had to be more dimensional. And I came up with the idea of the high school reunion. And, and what made me laugh was the idea of these two people who are perfectly happy and they don't realize that they haven't amounted to anything until they fill out that questionnaire. That yeah. was my original idea. Right. And before that, I'd been thinking Romy and Michelle go to college, Romy and Michelle go to Japan. You know, I didn't know what to do with them. No, it's that perfect. It's the perfect setup for those two. And what you said, too, because I just I always love characters, as you know, from my characters at the Groundlings, who are, are they're kind of delusional, like they don't have yeah. a clue, uh, but they think they do. They think they've got it all. And then they fill out this questionnaire. I love to write delusional characters. Yes. <laughs> They're so much fun. And this was, I always thought of it as like the first 10 minutes of the movie are just getting to know the characters. There's no plot at all. And it was like Adam and Eve and the apple. And then when they find out about the reunion, they start going on this sort of descent. Yeah. Or at least Romy does and brings Michelle along with her. Um, and 
Yeah, I worked on that movie on and off for five years. It was in development for five years. One of the years they fired me off the movie and some guy came in and rewrote it. And then we had had Lisa Kudrow and Janine Garofalo attached. Uh Neither of them would do the other script, which was amazing. And they had to bring me back. Oh, that's great. That's great. Okay, perfect time. We're going to take our first break. I'm talking to Robin Schiff, writer of Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, among other things, and Emily in Paris, which you can watch right now on Netflix. I'll give a little plug. uh, My show Sprung on Amazon Freebie. Not my show, but I worked on it. Very fun. Um, And we'll be right back. You're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Hey, everybody. It's Tim Stack from It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack, asking you to watch the show Sprung on Freebie, Amazon's new free channel. I promise you it's funny, it's got heart, and my shoulder appears in episode three. Okay, I'm playing the song from St. Elmo's Fire because a sketch that Robin and I wrote that was very popular at the Grand Lakes. Tell everyone the title of the sketch we wrote together. St. Elmo's Breakfast Club. (laughs) There it is, right there. One of all those movies. It says it all right there. Demi Moore. I was inspired by Demi Moore, even though I wore a blonde wig. Why I wore a blonde wig, I don't know. And my whole thing was everybody... We would establish like a group of five mismatched friends. Yes. And it was Miss Yvonne, Lynn Stewart. She played Phil the Ali Sheedy character. Sort she of played a the composite. Yeah. Kanka. Kanka. Yeah. Kanka. <laughs> and Phil Hartman played the sort of older aging jock who was still friends with the high school kids. Yeah. You played. What did you put? I was sort of. I I remember I had an athletic sweatshirt. I think I I think I was supposed to be the athlete, and Phil oh, was, were, he was. He was like the Judd Nelson angry rocker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said I was the athlete because again, I always, I you know, this is how I sold Son of the Beach was. I I always say like, ugh, and I you know, you're not born without a with a body like this. <laughs> and I lift up my shirt. Of course, I have this horrible skinny paunchy body, but it always got a laugh. Which is again, then I went on to sell Son of the Beach with that same joke. Um, but uh, that was a, I, I don't know. I remember when we first got together, Robin, you came up to me. I was like, hey, you want to write a sketch together? I was like, uh, yeah, sure. And we we came up with St. Elmo's Breakfast Club. And it was very funny because it just like says it all right there in the title. Like, you know exactly what this sketch is going to be. And everybody stepped forward and would do monologues. and Yes. My, I think my monologue was something like, because um, I was, my whole job was, I was the pretty girl. Yeah. That was that's my it. character. Yes. And it was. Like, and it was the pain of being pretty. The pain of being pretty. And yeah. it was like all the pressure I was under. Friends, straight A's, everybody <laughs> right. to go out with me. Right. You know, I forget what it was, the, the, the pressure of being the, um, the most popular. popular, pretty, yeah, everything straight A's. You don't understand what I go through. Uh, yeah, every character in that sketch was just more ridiculous than the other. Ending with Lynn, who was 
Like the deranged girl, the Ali Sheedy character who kept crying because her mouse had gotten into a pile of coffee grounds and then got all the caffeine, made the mouse go in a wheel and and run itself to death. <laughs> I don't remember that. But when you know, when you and I were in the Groundlings, Tim, we had a lot of writers, people who went on to be writers. And I honestly think that we had in, in just in terms of material, we had some of the best material that I've ever seen in the Groundlings. Yeah. And I think, and Tom Maxwell, our director at the time, went on to become a writer as well. And yeah. I think you're right. It was very, I don't know, I have not been to the Groundlings in so long. I should go. But you're right that it was much more sketch oriented than it was improv oriented, if that makes any sense, I think. We had we would have different amounts of sketches. I mean, of improv. Right. Like sometimes we had a second act, didn't we? Or a lot of the second act that was improv, but a lot of times it was just yeah, or sort of a an extended scene, like another version of Bill Steinkellner's Instaplay, yeah, yeah, like yeah. a shorter version of that. Like we would improvise a. It would be a twenty minute improvise but tom would run blackouts and you know right, right. so he yeah. was sort of writing it directing it as we went through this improv yeah. you know and, and then, setting setting up scenes and stuff like that but you know the groundlings i got involved in the groundlings i was already writing i didn't have any ambitions to be an actor and i was depressed i was had writer's block I was writing movies at the time, so I was by myself all the time and I was depressed. And my shrink is like, I want to put you on meds. And at the time, it was before everyone in California was on meds. So yeah. I was like, no. I say, what sounds so bad about that? <laughs> I'm going to be a zombie. And then she's like, well, you know, maybe you'll join a charity or get involved in a sport. And I'm like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and I used to go see the Groundlings. I used, you know, when it was Paul Rubens yes. and. John Paragon, Phil Hartman, yes. Cassandra Peterson, Phyllis Katz, just Edie McClurg, yes. all these amazing people. And I always thought that looked like fun. And so on an impulse at the end of a Groundling show, I stopped by the box office and I asked about classes. And he said, oh, there's a basic class starting soon, basically. And um I decided to do it. Great. And that's how I got involved in the Growlings. And the first time I got a laugh, I was like, must have more laughs as <laughs> soon as possible. It really is true. It's just so addictive. And and, and, then and I'm still good friends. You know, I'm still good friends with a lot of people yes. from that time in my life. And I learned so much about writing and got more confident in my own writing. I just learned a lot. Yeah. No, it's really true. And and it also forces you to be sort of a comedy capitalist where, you know, at the Groundlings, if you want stuff on stage, you better write it. You better come up with material. And that, that's why when Robin said you want to write a sketch, it was like, and we got that thing on and it became a very popular sketch for a short period of time. We also wrote um, together a, an industrial film, which was a very weird experience. Robin, tell everyone what an industrial film is. It's a company calls you uh, <laughs> to make a film. Is it for their employees or is it an advertisement? I think that one. I, I I did a few because Dave Morgison, who you might know, used to hire a lot of groundlings to do industrial shows. But most of them are live. You go to conventions and then you're getting drunk with the people that work at the company. 
But we only did a couple of industrial films, but one of them, I think it was, it was called, it was terrible. It was called It's a Wonderful Bank. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's a wonderful life, but it's a wonderful bank, which, of course, the villain in the movie is a bank. It, and it's a wonderful life, but not this bank. <laughs> this bank loves people. So This was the hero bank. Yeah. So somehow we got, Robin and I got hooked in by Tom Maxwell, who I think directed this brilliant piece of film. Um, and the premise was it was about a bank. You could get credit insurance like no, it's not life insurance. It's credit insurance. That was like a big part of the movie where one of our characters grabbed like, what? You can get credit insurance. Like, it's like life insurance, but it's for your mortgage. And this was going to save people, and it becomes, it's a wonderful bank. Um, but we wrote that, and I just remember, um, this is a compliment to you. I remember you had a little house in West L.A. Like a, yeah. Which was also impressive. I think I was still in an apartment at that point. Maybe I, yes. I think it was the, I, a rental on Barrington. Yeah, but I thought that was impressive. Um, and she's got a car that's been paid off. <laughs> <laughs> You're really, really obsessed with the fact that I my car was paid off. Oh, so then, still am, still keeps me up. But here's what I also remember about you at that time. You knew how to use a computer. Like, oh, yeah. You understood DOS. And I remember you kept saying, I would like pitch a joke or you would pitch a joke. And say, I'm going to put that in scrap. And I had <laughs> <laughs> no, what? what is scrap? And it you would explain totally it. Of course, it didn't crap. dawn on me. It was probably a gigantic old K-Pro. I, I bought a K-Pro from Jake Hogan that was portable because the hard drive was bolted down. Oh, my So you gosh. could take it with you, but it was like 60 pounds. <laughs> that might have like been it. gigantic suitcase. <laughs> that might have been it. But I do remember thinking at the time, like, she's got her car paid off. Were you smart? This is my quote leads to this question. Were you smart in high school? You know, that's a funny question, but I was, I, this was like a traumatic thing for me. I, there, I took a test. It was like an aptitude test. And I think it was in junior high. And I was told that I tested borderline between the smart kids and the average kids. <laughs> Why you would tell this to someone in middle yeah. school and, you know, color my whole life. So I, um, in high school, I was given a choice. Do I go into honors classes and, or the classes of the average kids? And right. I chose average kids. I did not want to. So I got straight A's, but I don't know. I have a certain kind of brain. Like I tested horribly. I tested so low on my SATs. I, I wouldn't get in anywhere now with my SAT scores. Right. At the time, they just let you into UCLA if you were in California. Basically. Is that where you went to college? Yeah. Okay. But I studied history. I didn't get a degree in writing or acting or anything. I did history. Right. Because I would have thought you were smart. I don't know. Mo again, most groundlings are, you know, barely, you know, they, they barely graduated high school. A lot of kids went to college, but they're just not known for their academics. And I remember thinking at the time, watching you work on this computer, 
like, oh my God, she's so smart. She knows about scrap. Whatever, uh, whatever. I want time to appreciate that I was smart because I am smart in the way I'm smart. Yeah. But I, <laughs> like I said, well, I have a younger brother who, you know, on the SATs, he got like 1580. And, you know, he was like the, he was in all the honors classes and went to Stanford and Harvard Law School. I think and, I remember him now. Yeah, Tom. So, um, you know, that was the environment that I grew up in. So I was just this sort of creative one that, you know, yeah. over there. Because that's, that's, that is the status quo with the Groundlings is most of the kids, although you were probably not a show off in high school. I was, a you know, like. Whatever I could do to get a laugh in class. No, I would do. I was badly behaved oh, and a straight A student. So, like, I would mouth off in class. That's fun. Uh, but I was a straight A student, so what could they do? Right. That's interesting. That's, that's, that's uh, unique. Um, okay, we're coming up on our second break. Uh, again, this seems to be going great. Uh, I think so. I think so. <laughs> I think the reviews are flying in. Um, I'm talking to Robin Schiff, longtime writer, producer, uh, Romy and Michelle's high school reunion, among other things. But we'll also watch Lover Boy because I remember when that, when you sold that, I th- kept thinking again. It's like, oh my god, you sold a movie like Lover Boy, and it's, it's a and it's a funny movie. It's a absolute funny movie. It was very popular with 14 year old boys, right. like. If you meet somebody who was around 14, 15, 16 at the time, they really loved it. But should I tell you how that movie came about? Sure. Uh, Do we have time I, or should we pick it up on the other side? Yeah, we got time. Go. Um, I was friends with this guy named Jeff Sagansky, who was an executive at NBC at the sure. time. And he liked to hear about all my sexual exploits. He was not he wasn't a prude. He was just a guy who wasn't getting a lot of action. And he liked to hear about my sexual exploits. Wow. And a, a guy in one of the Groundlings classes who was a very good improviser, not particularly good looking, took off his shirt one day. And I'm like, oh, he's got a really nice body, whatever it was. Guy was 10 years younger than I was, which isn't that bad. Go on. <laughs> I was 29. So he was 19 years old. I had one of those too with the groundlings. Keep going. <laughs> but um, so I tell Jeff Sagansky about this and I said, he's a really unlike, he's a, he's great in bed, but he seemed like a really unlikely lover. And I said, it would, it would be funny if there's a kid who nobody thinks would be a good lover He's home for the summer and he starts sleeping with all his mom's friends at the country club for money. <laughs> and that would, you know, so I say this at dinner. No, it wasn't a pitch. It right. was just whatever. The guy, this guy, Sagansky, gets made president of TriStar Pictures, calls me up, says, Would you write that? He called it Boy Gigolo. Would you write that Boy Gigolo movie? And um, there was about to be a strike. This was in 84, I think. Right. And um, and he's and there was about to be a strike. So I said, if you can close my deal and pay me before the strike, I'll do it. 
They make the deal, they close the deal, the strike never happens. And now I'm stuck writing a movie about like a, a, a comedy about a young male prostitute. It started really depressing me. And I was like, how can I write this movie? It's so dark, you know? And um, I was actually ended up being fired off the movie and rewritten. And because um, I had other stuff in it that I felt made it about something and they promptly took all that out. Yeah. Well, it's fun. It's fun if people are looking Patrick Dempsey, <laughs> young Patrick Dempsey, young 19-year-old Patrick Dempsey. He looks nothing like he looks now. I think he's got he got a nose job. I he looked he, Yes. Super skinny and super geeky yeah, looking. Yeah, he was a geeky kid and now he's just yeah. It was cute. Uh okay, we got to take that break. You're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack and we'll be right back. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Little uh, union music to cheer everybody's mood. Um... Robin, I know you're not on the negotiating committee of the current strike going on now, but you were on the negotiating committee of the previous strike in 88. No, no, 2007. 2007. Sorry, sorry. The first yeah. strike was 88. That was the one. Yes, that was. Yeah, that, that was another long one. Yes. Um, I lost the movie with Judy Toll. Judy and I wrote a Groundlings movie. Uh, that Steve White, former Groundley, was an executive at New World. And by the time the strike was over, he got the boot and that movie got the boot. So, but, um, so, but tell us, I, I, what is that like being on a negotiating committee for something as immense and important as a union contract? It's really a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of responsibility. I, um, I had been... I keep talking about being fired, but I was fired off a project and I was really hopping mad. And they were having like Patrick Verone and David Young and other people were having these meetings with showrunners to talk about the issues and sort of prime people for the fact that there might be a strike. And I went off at this little gathering. There were, by little, there were maybe 12 people there. And I was like, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And these horrible companies. And um, I get a call the next day saying, would you run for the board of directors? (laughs) And I'd never run for anything before in my life. But a guy named Tom Shulman called me and Tom had written Dead Poets Society and What About Bob? And I really looked up to him and I couldn't believe that this guy that I admired so much was calling to ask me to run for the board. And then there were other people on the board, like um, Phil Robinson, who wrote Field of Dreams and Ron Bass, who wrote Rain Man and um, Robert King, who went on to create The Good Wife. And it was just people I looked up to and admire. And so I decided to run and there was a ticket. So I was on the ticket and it was a popular ticket. So I was pretty sure that I would win. Uh-huh. And then they asked me to be on the negotiating committee. You know, it because I've been in the Writers Guild for so long and I'm a woman, I've gotten a lot of stuff because people needed a woman. And there weren't a lot of women that 
they could they wanted to deal with. So one of the reasons I think I was asked to be on the negotiating committee, I was on the board, but I was also a woman. And again, a lot of people that I admired and I felt that it was important. Um, Subsequently, I was on the board and stopped doing it because unless it was a really important issue, I wasn't didn't want to drive cross town to the the building, the Writers Guild building. But um, I just learned so much about negotiating and that you have to give stuff up and what you do and don't say. And a lot of the time is just spent sitting around because there's a lot of smaller meetings, like the bigger meetings are business affairs for all the companies. So maybe there's like 50 people on their side and maybe 20 people on our side and you go into a room and it's very formalized. Right. Can I interrupt for one second? I want to get back to that because I'm I'm visualizing that as being, you know, writers and then these business people who are just they're just about numbers they don't care my question is and i'm sure the answer is yes but i'd love to hear it is do the writers have actuaries as well i know the they're all running numbers at the companies of what this is going to cost do the writers have their own people running numbers like this is what we're going to lose but this is what we're going to gain and and we need to find i don't know i don't have any idea wow I just I don't yeah I'm not you know I know a lot of those people but I'm not an insider anymore um it it's it's interesting and I'm a union girl you know I believe in the collective even though I also hate people but I hate people <laughs> but I believe in the collective and um and I you know there were people who came before me who gave up a lot of stuff so that we would have residuals. And I want to leave the business in shape for the people who are coming behind me so that they have a career, that they have a job they can make a living off of. And let me just go back to that image for one second. So you're in this room, which I'm looking, I'm visualizing like from the movie Network, but you've got how many people on their side and how many on your side? 50 to about 30 or maybe 60 to 30 there's a lot more of them and it's very formalized like if you're in a room maybe chris kaiser would speak or ellen stutzman who's our head negotiator and then carol lombardini their head negotiator would speak and everybody makes presentations and then you what they call sidebars so then there's sidebars and or you're just sitting around like you make a presentation they make a you know presentation then everybody goes off and talks privately this is if you're negotiating right which they're not even doing not negotiating right that would be the sitting around time when you're sitting around and like phil robinson is there are you (laughs) i would i would would be finding myself just asking him questions like how did this scene take place how did this you know like i became good friends with andrew bergman wow Andrew Bergman, the in-laws. Which I and, just watched uh, again two weeks ago. Is Honeymoon in Vegas. Yeah. And, you know, just a great writer, somebody that I had admired. And he became my buddy. And, you know, 
Terry George, who wrote In the Name of the Father, Susanna Grant, who wrote uh-huh. Aaron Brockovich. Yes. I had them all sign. I have a picket sign somewhere that they all signed. Um, but yeah, you sit around and talk. I remember one day people started sharing their, um, well, it was iTunes, you know, but your, your, lit, your music. Sure. So people were sort of mocking each other's music choices. <laughs> and you know, kind of getting to know each other's music choices. And um, I was on another negotiating committee with Billy Ray, who's an amazing guy, and Chip Johannesson and and Chris Kaiser, I think, were the co-chairs. Um, and I feel like we're in really good hands. I just feel like, unfortunately, we're negotiating with sociopaths. I, I really, I, I got to say, and I was saying this because, you know, I play golf with some rich guys up here, and, they're also asking me, like, how's the strike going? How's the strike? And I just say, there there was a time in this country when rich, like, really, really rich people, they sort of went to their own private island or they lived, they belonged to clubs that nobody even heard of, you know. That, But now there's this my yacht versus your yacht. They flaunt this wealth that they obviously make on the backs of workers, writers being one of those workers. And and then they wonder, I just, I say to people like, yeah, this strike has to happen because these people are making too much money on the backs of workers. That's just my take they're, on it. If they're claiming that they're not making enough of a profit to pay us, why do they are they paying these guys that much money? Right. I would do it for ten million dollars. I just saw it. I just saw uh, Zaslov, the guy, the discovery guy. Yeah, I was reading about the layoffs at at the TCM channel, Turner Classic Movies, which my wife and I watch all the time. We just love it. And there are all these layoffs where the executives who are running it are cutting themselves. They're cutting their salaries. They're laying people off. They're butchering the entire network because they get a directive from up above saying you have to cut 60% of your budget or something, which is crazy. Meanwhile, up above is giving themselves raises. And that just seems obscene. It's obscene. obscene that they do this. What, and then cry poor to a union negotiation. It just the only thing that I will say in David Zaslov's defense is he came up with Max. And what a genius to take <laughs> HBO out of the name of right. H- HBO Max. Right. You know? Like who doesn't call it HBO? It's, it's idiot. What yes. an idiot. Well, Twitter becoming X might might have uh, usurped him. Elon it's Musk. It's like mutually exclusive. They can both be idiots. They go into a room and pitch on words that have X in them. And Elon came up, well, I can beat it. I got one letter for my word, X. Uh, we're going to take another break, a third break. I'm talking to Robin Schiff, an old friend and, and fellow groundling from way back when. We could do another few hours on this um writer romeo and michelle's high school reunion among other things check her out um you know you don't have any social media right you know i i'm on facebook but i don't really i understand uh unlike some other i I literally don't accept friends unless i know who they are right 
Um, no, I think that's a, a smart move. Anyway, uh, we'll be right back for more of this. You're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Hey, it's Tim Stack, and having been in show business for so long, I have a lot of really funny friends, and you can hear them all on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. That's part of the Jeremiah Show. So listen. Read my messages if you want, I don't mind. I'm not like the other girls. You're not like the other guys. Hold me close, cause it's too soon to say goodbye. You're some kind of beautiful And you got me in the sky Okay, that's a little music from the TV show Emily in Paris Which my guest Robin Schiff is one of the executive producers on My boss here, Jeremiah, loves that show Right? <laughs> yes, and my friends My friends love it Oh yeah, I heard about it My you daughter, I think it. I told you this uh, My daughter has Emily in Paris parties at, And she's 35 yeah. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> she has oh, literally when this new season came on, she had a party and everybody had to come dressed uh, Emily in Paris. So she's uh, going to have to wait a while. I just found out yesterday that production has been moved to January. Um, and that's even if we finish, we'd have to finish in probably middle of November with the strike. I don't know how long this strike is going to last. Yes, you are correct. I don't either. I've sort of always said Thanksgiving, and people are like, that's crazy. It's like, no, no, it's not. That's not, you know, it's not crazy. Um, so uh, you, uh, when I did see you in the strike line, you were talking about Emily in Paris, and you were saying, and I've had jobs like this where these jobs come along. They're just fantastic jobs. They pay you well. But in this case, you get to go to Paris on this job. Jo- so tell yeah, us about that. Here's, um, I might have said this to you that day, but uh, many years ago, there was a shampoo commercial with Kelly LeBrock, and she would look at the camera and say, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Wow, that's like your character from St. Elmo's Breakfast Club. That's Yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's how I feel when I tell other writers about Emily in Paris. Yeah. The writer's room starts in L.A., and we go for maybe four months and then we move to Paris and the writer's room continues in Paris. So we have a writer's room and um, during production we're there and I'm there for two and a half months. When the when the writer's room finishes, then I am done. Um, one writer stays there for four and a half months, but he's like friends with the cast. And right. as much as I love living in Paris and I love it it's so much fun it's such a great city um i'm ready to come home after two and a half months yeah you know absolutely no i that's my friends and my mom's 91 and what's her name again is what estelle what's sorrel sorrel yes what a character she was you said my wife had a store if you remember on montana and you would uh, uh come in there occasionally so um so this job, and it was, and you said that day, uh, it's like one of the greatest jobs I've ever had in the strike, you know, interrupted it, which is the price of, uh, of this, one of the prices of this strike. But um, I was thinking that's such a great, was there a job? Well, you sort of said it, like what, what drove you to the union, you got fired off a job. Was there one job in particular that like, stands out in your mind, like, I can't believe 
this happened. Like, this is a tragedy that this happened because this show or movie or whatever went away. Oh, you mean something I was sad about? Yeah, something you were sad or mad or about. Oh, I know exactly what it was. It was almost perfect. It was a show I created with Ken Levine and David Isaac starring Nancy Travis. It was on in the late 90s. It was such a good show. Right. I'm so proud of it. I showed the pilot to a big like lecture class at USC and I had girls coming up to me afterwards because the main character was a successful TV writer producer who also was in a relationship and uh -huh. both and um, I had girls come up and say it they can never see successful women like that in comedies you know you see them more in in dramas right but it it that show should have stayed on the air and it got canceled and broke my heart i was just shocked yeah it's just and it really does people you try to explain like your heart can get broken uh, you know with a show doesn't happen or you know i didn't get saturday night live and i went to bed for about five months you know just like you know just like what am i what i you know it, it's a heartbreaking moment and uh, you try to explain it to people it's like eh, no, it's a tv show and, and but it's it's the life of the performer or the writer that puts literally puts their life into this stuff and um changed my whole life if that show had continued i've managed to work 42 years and the first hit show i've worked on is emily in paris i've done nothing but new shows they always get canceled so i have no residuals yeah that's and interesting yeah. I, I've been lucky enough because of Greg Garcia to be on shows that have gone into syndication and it's great. I mean, I you know, they get they get less and less, but it's really great. That's interesting. I'm sure the movies you've written. Uh, but again, how many movies did you write that never got made or somebody else came in and got credit or after Romeo and Michelle trying to think if I wrote any other movies? I probably wrote some movies, but nothing that got made. But I'm more, I mean, more of a TV watcher than a movie person. And more, I consider myself a TV writer, even though the thing I'm known for the most is a movie. Right. I've done most of my work in TV. It, but it is interesting that one movie, that movie, can, you know, we've talked so much about it today and people want to hear about it. It really has been an incredible calling card. And I love the fact that it started at the Groundlings. It started as a sketch. The Groundlings, well, it's really having a moment right now. Um, it it had its 25-year anniversary of coming out last year, and there was a big article in Vogue.com, like a huge, long, you know, he wanted to do like a comprehensive oral history. If anyone's interested, it's really good, and you can find it online. But we just had one of those Cinespia Hollywood Forever Cemetery uh -huh. screenings sold out three weeks before the screening, 4,000 people there. Um, American Cinematheque is doing another screening, sold out in a week. Um, and young people, I went oh, to the hall. 100%. And it's like, how are they finding the movie? And I watched the movie. This was three weeks ago. 
And I don't know how I escaped not writing something I could be canceled for. (laughs) You know, how did I, how did I manage that? Yeah. I don't know how there's one line in the movie that I was kind of cringing about where, um, uh, Romy there it's at the beginning of the movie and Romy says, sometimes I, uh, I wish I was a lesbian. And Michelle says, want to try and have sex sometime just to see if we are. And Romy's like, yuck, Michelle, just the thought of having sex with another woman creeps me out. But then I finished, followed it up with, but if we're not married by the time we're 30, ask me again. <laughs> so, okay, good. I got out of that one. But, um, but yeah, it it's it's amazing to me. And I, I stood at that Hollywood Forever Cemetery just feeling kind of overwhelmed. Yeah. I do remember. I mean, it's just, again, the Groundlings thing. I, I, you know, as I get older, I look back at that experience. You know, you mentioned Paul Rubens, who just passed away. And he was so, uh, just so successful, what he took there and built an entire empire of Pee Wee. But I look back at that first night and everybody has that experience. You go to the Groundlings the first time. And you're just sort of blown away. You went to the box office and asked how to take a class. I went that night and didn't know anything. I happened to go to a party afterwards, literally that night, and Phil Hartman was at the party. That's how I found it. And I just saw him. I said, oh, my God, I just saw the show. That's how I found out. Well, there were class. I said, how do you do that? Well, there yeah, that voice, that class is there. And and he had a little, (laughs) uh, when people carry little address books, he had Maxwell's number. And, wow. and yeah, call this guy. Already acting? I'm sorry. You already acting? No, I had literally. I was away. I was a bartender at the Troubadour, and wow. and I read about the Groundlings in the L.A. Weekly, and I went and bought a ticket. When you had to go to the theater to buy a ticket, there was no computer, anything like that. And I bought a ticket, and I've told this story before in the show where. I only knew one person when I moved to LA who was a cocaine dealer and, but I didn't do cocaine. It was never my thing. And so he said, come to this party afterwards. So I go to the groundings and it's Paul and it's Phil and it's John Paragon, who I always think within the space of that building is the funniest groundling. I just thought Paragon got the hardest, the hardest laughs. Just like, how does he do that? But I go to the party and Hartman's there, and that's how I found the Groundlings was. Uh, wow. So I remember uh, Hartman doing Light Man. Oh, Do you remember? Yes, of course. Well, at one and, point, I was the stage manager, and I used to have to help him with the flashlights. And then he did this like sniper. Yes. Like a, a crazy military. I don't know how he made that funny, but I don't know. I'm sure it was funny. <laughs> I think it was and funny because he was doing uh, it. Rubens doing a panel with that guy, little who was like Moses Feldman. Moses his, Feldman, his character, little Yehudi. Little Yehudi. <laughs> Here's one to get canceled: Paul doing uh, a Native American lounge singer, Chief J. Longtoe. <laughs> And his song was, soon it's going to rain. I can feel it. So he's doing a rain chant uh, as part of a lounge song. It's just crazy stuff. Uh, sadly, I'm getting the motion from Dr. D. We're out of time. Uh, want to thank Jeremiah again? You know, you should keep doing this, Tim. Yes. I have nothing else to do. So, yes, and Jeremiah keeps funding these things. So I'm not sure why he does that, but uh, he does it. Uh, so thank you, Jeremiah, again. 
Dr. D, our engineer. Robin Schiff, thank you so much for doing this. Really fun. I'll see you in line sometime. Yeah, we'll Uh, look forward to that. Okay. See you. Thanks again, Robin. We'll see you soon. Bye. And you've been listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. We'll see you next time. As always, a big thanks to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all. Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at thejeremiahshow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and me, your announcer, Tony Kelly. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.